Welcome to the Spoon Drift Podcast. Here on the show, I like to talk about a lot of different things. I just skim the surface of a giant ocean of information. I capture the Spoon Drift. I'd like to point out that I am happy to finally be making some podcasts again. It has been far too long. Things got pretty busy, and it just wasn't in the cards to continue making regular episodes. But now I have a new one. <laughs> On today's episode, I'm going to be talking with special guest Jesse. The conversation is centered on equity and inclusion in engineering, but I don't want to give too much away. So let's just transition right into the conversation. Welcome to the Spoon Drift Podcast. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Jesse, with us today. If you could uh, go ahead and briefly introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. My name is Jesse. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I just recently graduated from the Georgia Institute of Technology with a master's in mechanical engineering, which will be relevant very soon. Um, and what do I like to do for fun? Reese, my recent obsession is the new video game Tears of the Kingdom, the new Legend of Zelda video game. Um, but other than that, like making music, uh, reading, doing honestly a lot of stuff. Can you briefly like discuss how you got into engineering itself? Was there something that kind of drew you to the field? Yeah, I I like creating things. Um, and engineering, especially mechanical engineering, I felt in high school was a very pragmatic way to go about that um i didn't really feel like i had the endless wells of creativity to become an artist for reals so i felt like engineering was still a good way to kind of marry my love of science but with creation and problem solving so that's how i ended up in engineering uh so mechanical engineering you just graduated with a master's of science uh and you did the the thesis track for your degree, is that correct? Yes. Okay, can, can you mention, like, uh, for those who are kind of unfamiliar with the way that graduate school works, can you explain what a thesis is and the way it's folded into the curriculum? So a thesis is basically you have a research question and you complete a whole experiment and to answer that research question, to kind of show that you are capable of both the scientific inquiry and method, as well as taking the things that you've learned from your engineering degree and applying that to the scientific method. And it counts as a certain portion of the credit hours that you take in grad school. So if you do a thesis, you have you don't have to take as many actual courses because that time you would normally devote to your courses and instead devoted to research. So you can join a variety of different labs and do research on honestly anything under the sun, depending on what lab you join. Um, so I joined a really cool lab that's devoted to advanced manufacturing but 
it's a very broad field that covers anything from the actual manufacturing methods to digitally modeling those manufacturing methods to ways that we can teach and advocate for those design methods or equitable design methods, which is where I ended up doing my research, is equity in design teams and teaching how to design equitably together. I think that serves as a great transition. So can you can you walk us through the topic of your thesis? So the topic of my thesis was trying to figure out what kind of factors inform how people interact with the different tasks that go into being a part of a design team. And so when you're on an engineering design team, there's a lot of different things that need to be done from like designing whatever product or solution mechanically to writing the code for that, building your product. Um, And then something that a lot of people actually don't think as much of when they immediately think of design team is all of the documentation that goes into that because engineers have to document their work. They have to present that work to people, communicate it to people. And that's really important. So I was trying to figure out what kind of factors lead people to gravitate towards each of these respective tasks because current research has shown that women tend to gravitate towards more of the non-technical tasks like documentation and presentation making, report writing, and men tend to gravitate towards those more technical tasks like coding or building. And this creates an inequitable gap in experience opportunities, um, which kind of snowballs into a lot more other uh, equity issues in STEM later down the line. What are some of the, I guess, the topics or the um, the focuses that may that might lead someone to lean toward one task over another? So an interesting thing is. There's some research that has shown women and men don't actually have differences in interest for tasks. So they're equally interested um, comparatively to each of the tasks. So my research focused on engineering university students in the US. And these students, because they're engineering majors, obviously want to do the engineering related work, more technical tasks more because it's what they've chosen their careers to be. Um, But where the difference shows up actually is in people's prior experience levels and their self-efficacy levels. So self-efficacy is someone's belief in their ability to succeed at a certain task. So it's a little different from self-confidence where self-confidence is just kind of like your own self-image, but self-efficacy is tied directly to a perception of success for a specific task. Okay, so now we've, we've talked a little bit about 
kind of the dynamics of group projects, being able to identify specific tasks that are required. You have technical tasks, um, some of where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. You have an end goal. You have to plan how to get there. You have to execute on that plan. And then you have to communicate the results. And I think most everybody, whether or not they're mechanical engineering like you, or whether they're in business or finance or sales, any any industry has a has to work with other people and to make these things happen. And so how about now we kind of talk about some of the personal experiences that we've had with group projects, whether they be small scale or large scale, short term, long term. Um, can you think of some instances where maybe you've experienced this sort of uh, group dynamic when it came to needing to solve a problem? For sure. I There's a lot of, of my prior experiences in design groups where uh, I would say that I did end up spearheading a lot of the documentation. I think it was a combination of it's something that I've had a lot of prior experience with and a lot of other people, um, mainly men in these groups I was with, just weren't as confident. And since a lot of these times these group projects are like outcome focused, you want to split up the work in a way that's optimal. So people who are confident and have that prior experience do the jobs that they're most confident in. Uh, the unfortunate thing that I've experienced, and I'm sure a lot of other people can echo it and you can find supporting documentation and literature, is that because of this kind of like loop of you do the thing you're most confident in, so then you don't branch out, you end up pigeonholing yourself into a role. And so for me and a lot of my project groups early on was being the one doing documentation. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have had a lot of technical experience as well um, because I was fortunate enough to go to a STEM focused high school. I did STEM extracurriculars way before I even got to college. So when I got to these college design teams, even though I still was doing a lot of the documentation work, um, I was still able to advocate for myself in the technical spaces so that I could do both. Um, but I did also see throughout my time on these teams as a teaching assistant, um, a lot of the times women were the ones doing the poster design work or the report writing. And when you go talk to them, they're like, oh, so-and-so um, other um, man in the group just, you know, has a better grasp on it. Or they're like, oh, I it's a better use of my skills to do this. So a lot of these themes that I've seen in research, I've definitely seen echoed in my own personal experiences. Now, how early do you think um, this general understanding of one's skill set, like if women are thinking that 
you know, maybe I'm better at documenting or designing posters. Where in the academic timeline, is there an idea of where this sort of begins? Is it like elementary school or middle school? Are there any findings in the literature that suggests where the root of this is? Um, I'm sure there is. Most of my research has been focused on kind of university age students. Um, but on a kind of more broad scale, this kind of social messaging happens throughout people's lives. And it's not something that's like one single experience that defines this, right? It's these constant social messages that you get that on their own you think are very innocuous. But when you see in media, in schools, um, these kinds of messages being portrayed throughout your entire life, it really builds up a kind of, you know, self-image. There's been research that shows that um, parents will underestimate their daughter's intelligence in comparison to their sons. And teachers will do the same thing for uh, their students. They estimate um, young girls to be better at the humanities and boys to be better in the sciences and math, even though that's just not true. At least for me, I find it hard to think of one particular experience where someone is like overtly sexist to you, you know, especially in this day and age where people are becoming more aware of these kinds of biases. And so they're more careful about what they say. They try um, and I guess unbias their thinking. So it's hard to kind of pick up on these subtleties now in the way people interact with each other. Um, but it's it's a very complicated topic to try and dissect, you know. Agreed. And there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And like you said, it, it's not always obvious. So if the problem is somewhat hard to identify, like where it begins, what about steps that people can make to uh, make a more equitable design process and collaboration to kind of remove some of these biases? Is, are there any good methods that people have tried and implemented that can be, you know, re reliable in that sense? Uh, one thing I found in pedagogy research was for teachers to try and emphasize a learning outcome rather than a, like, success outcome. Like, to emphasize that this project is for you to learn branch out into areas that you're not as confident in uh, and less so grading on is my final project like the absolute marvel of engineering it could be you know that's one way uh, the other way would just be for women to try and advocate for themselves and for men to take notice of the space that they take in these groups. Um, I know there's been 
some research done. I don't have the exact numbers memorized, um, but there's been research done on the percentage that men and women speak during like class discussions or like meeting discussions. And then they get asked for their own perception of how much percentage of the conversation the men uh, were speaking for or the women were speaking for. And the research found that women estimated their contributions pretty accurately to how much they were saying. Um, and the percentage of the conversation they dominated was much lower than that of men. Whereas men, when women spoke somewhere under half, so it wasn't 50-50, but men would perceive the conversation as having been split 50-50. Um, and so I would challenge men in these design groups to try and consciously give space to women to give ideas. Um, it's, I mean, they're not doing it. You're, you're not doing it on purpose, right? Like men, I don't think there are any really bad guys that go out there and go, you know, what would be a great thing to do today? Uh, dominate a conversation and don't allow women to say anything at all ever. Uh, no one does that. Well, I sure hope no one does that. Um, but we, we get kind of like socially programmed by the society that we live in. And so it's good to kind of take note. Um, and then I would just challenge everyone to go out of their comfort zones. So for women to reach into technical spaces that they may not be as confident in. Um, and for men to reach into this documentation space that they may not, also not be as confident in. Um, both are both are valuable skills to learn. I think communication is something that is often overlooked. And so, yeah, there, there's value in all these different tasks. <laughs> Whether or not they're emphasized or not, the value is there. Getting into engineering, engineering can be a little bit intimidating. Is there a way that, you know, of, um, for maybe like high school students or even middle school students that they can kind of learn a little bit about engineering or different organizations perhaps that you're familiar with that could be good ways for people to learn about engineering? So I know that there are so many STEM organizations under the sun right now. Um, so I would definitely just Google any extracurriculars nearby for you. Um, for K through 12, there are so many programs. There are, I know a lot of universities also host STEM summer camps, um, which is a fun way to kind of dip your toes in. That's what I did as a kid. I did a lot of STEM summer camps um, at nearby universities. Um, another interesting thing would be to kind of implement STEM and engineering into your everyday lives. Like, I think there's a lot of, like engineering seems very intimidating when you think about like building planes and spaceships and stuff like that, right? Uh, but engineering also goes into the things that we use every day. Like someone engineered your bedroom door 
Someone engineered the chariot city again. Um, someone created all of these things. And personally, I think it's very interesting to think, to look at something and think about what kind of engineering design choices went into these. And, you know, to encourage children to be curious and create. Um, and even if the things they're making seem simple, that kind of like creative exploration and problem solving is engineering. Even if it's just, I don't know, your child making uh, your their latest clay art project, right? Like there's there's a lot of skills that go into engineering that we use every single day and people don't realize. So they don't think that they can step into this engineering world. I think it's it's real important to like to make space for people from all backgrounds, all sexes, all races to be able to get into these fields and to kind of make it accessible. So that's it's really important. And engineering as is probably one that's um, more male dominated. Uh, there are other like fields that, for instance, I know are more female dominated, um, and that sort of dynamic is kind of interesting like how these fields actually start to have mostly males or females um do you have any um knowledge or background around how these industries kind of become mostly just females or just males or how they transition between one and the other depending on the career and whether or not it's stereotyped to require uh, what we would stereotype as masculine or feminine traits. Um, people are drawn to these careers because, um, I wouldn't say solely because, but it does influence some of their uh, decisions. And so there's been some research where uh, men and women were presented with job descriptions for the same job. Um, for example, say nursing, which is a predominantly uh, women-dominated field. If they were, if the job was described using feminine terms such as caring or nurturing, or even just outright saying the word nursing, um, men exhibited far lower interest. Whereas if they used uh, kind of masculine stereotyped descriptors um such as being you know the fact that i'm having to pause and really think about masculine descriptors for the nursing field really shows how far um this kind of societal message messaging goes um i mean nurses have to be problem solvers they are resilient um and they're honestly incredible. Um, shout out to the healthcare field. Um, but when when described with these masculine descriptors, men showed more interest. Um, so that's one way that we kind of, that the way society portrays these fields or, you know, this kind of cycle of um, the current gender breakdown in a field can kind of communicate these things to people. 
So the language, it really does matter whenever yes, we're presenting it, these things. It really does matter, which is really interesting because, I mean, you don't really, it's not something you really think about. It's not. <laughs> and I like in how companies like post jobs, I mean, what you're saying is, is really emphasizing the importance of just how they describe like the tasks or the skills that they require is going to heavily influence the, the people who apply and the people that like the pool of people that they'll be choosing from for selecting their next employee. So for yeah. employers, employees, it has a lot bigger. It's a bigger deal than you would think on the surface. For sure. Where choice is important. Also, what about um, like public figures? Um, I know historically speaking, a lot of the like the engineers that come to mind when people think of it, they are male. Uh, maybe like you know, presenting or emphasizing female figures in these male-dominated fields, fields, um, presenting these female figures from history, which exist, but maybe are not as you know, publicly known or emphasized as much could also kind of help shift, you know, the field to a more equitable distribution. I noticed, uh, so Crash Course is a pretty popular uh, YouTube series that talks on a lot of different STEM topics, um, anything from, you know, history or actually STEAM topics. They, you know, they've got, they have art, science, technology, engineering, math. I noticed the the spokesperson for the engineering courses is actually female, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, so representation is really important. Um, so one of the key contributors to um, motivating people towards doing anything is self-efficacy, which I mentioned earlier. And one of the key contributors to self-efficacy is something we call vicarious experiences, um, which is seeing someone else successfully doing a task, especially if that person is uh, of your representative demographic. So if you can see yourself in that person. Um, and so for women, especially, seeing strong women in leadership in um, men-dominated fields is very important and does encourage uh you know young girls to pursue these men dominated fields um there's a very famous and interesting experiment that was done a while ago a while ago called um picture a scientist there's actually a documentary under the same name that i would recommend people go watch called picture a scientist um and they asked young boys and girls to draw a picture of a scientist. And for a long while, um, everyone mostly drew pictures of men because in their minds and because of, you know, how society portrays scientists as being like men dominated and a field for men, they would draw men as scientists now actually when i think the study has been the experiment has been redone um in more recent times um more uh young girls are actually drawing women now as scientists which is great 
um, it's showing that being aware of these problems and advocating for change does work. This kind of messaging is very important. And so having representation is really important. Yeah, there's a lot of research to go to, to show how, how important it really is. And, you know, by putting your voice out there on this show, you're kind of building right into that too, as a female. It's true. <laughs> I, I sure hope so. I, I spend a lot of my free time um, volunteering in K through 12 STEM spaces. So. Oh, it, really? Yes. <laughs> so I, it's interesting because when I was participating in those K through 12 programs i remember there was um one like volunteer that was always there and i really looked up to her because i was like wow she's like such an incredible accomplished engineer um she's doing so many cool things and i want to be like her and like seeing her excel in this like man-dominated space i was like i can do it too and i am now and it's it's crazy it's crazy to know because i'm now volunteering for this organization in the same capacity that she used to in the same space that i used to look up to her in and it's crazy to me to know and i hope that by doing this, I am inspiring other young girls to be like, I can also be an engineer. That'd be really cool. I have a, I have a, I have a feeling that you're accomplishing that goal. <laughs> I sure hope so. What, what are what's like um what's the coolest thing that you find in engineering? What's the thing that you enjoy the most? Um, my favorite part is seeing the thing that you made work. Um there's a lot of hurdles to get through and a lot of watching your thing not work before it works. Um, but there's something very satisfying into solving a problem. Um, it's almost like solving a puzzle, but like it's, it's very free form and you get to choose the direction. Right. That's always very satisfying finding, finding a solution and seeing it work. Um, that that's my favorite part. It's almost like you get to build the puzzle and then solve it, right? Yeah. As an engineer, as a woman in engineering, um, do you have any book recommendations that people can go to to maybe learn more about this topic, this, you know, being able to diversify fields and bring different people into it? Yeah, so... One book I highly recommend is called Invisible Women. It's by Caroline Criado Perez. Um, it talks about data bias in a world designed for men. And so it really goes through um, just kind of how purely because of the fact that we don't collect enough um, data that's separated by women versus men we don't see a lot of hidden trends uh that impact women's well-being and a lot of the problems that 
she talks about in the book, she opens it by saying um, some some little fact. And you're, and at least I, as a woman, I go, yeah, I know that. That's, you know, echoes my own personal experience. But then she starts piling on statistics, um, more facts and scenarios that show you how that one little thing that you thought was innocuous and was just, you know, a haha simple fact of life really kind of snowballs into um, data inequity um, and design inequity for uh, women. I will say the the book mainly focuses on uh, women uh, and men. It's while like gender isn't a binary, it is pretty hard to collect large form data um for uh like non-binary folks uh anyone else on the non-binary spectrum i mean the book is talking about how hard it is to get people to even collect data on women so it's all of this is definitely like work that still needs to be done but it's interesting to read to kind of like open your eyes um there's another book that i have been has been recommended to me and i'm still in the process of reading called defined by design um and that book talks a little bit more about um how biased design can lead to inequities in like the end product like for example a lot of handheld power tools are just a little bit too big for women's hands to hold comfortably because a lot of people who design these tools design for a default um, ergonomic hand size for the average man. Um, Same for like standing table height. Like left-handed people are more prone to accidents and getting like a finger amputated in their lives because most tools are geared towards right-handed people. Um, Just things like that. It's it's definitely an interesting read. I'm still working my way through it. And then that Picture a Scientist documenta- documentary it talks about Title IX and the people that pushed for Title IX are, are still here. It still exists. This wasn't far in the past, which is a combination of sad to know that... Um, these changes happened so so recently but also proud to know that so much progress has been made so fast but there's still a long way to go uh for those that don't know can you briefly explain what title nine is oh title nine law protects people from sex discrimination in educational programs and activities at institutions that receive federal finance assistance so this is a big deal at any university that is, you know, publicly funded then. Yeah, so it it is um primarily sex discrimination. Yeah, so it it was a big deal. I I recently read that um like crash dummies have historically been male designed. So it's meant to model the standard male physique, but they've just recently started doing, you know, crash tests with a a female crash dummy. So it's got all of the the anatomical sizings of a standard, you know, of a normal female 
structure. So that's kind of, I guess, a step in the right direction in terms of data equity. So now we'll be able to collect yeah. a lot of information about how women might be able or how they would be impacted or negatively or positively by safety features put into cars. Yeah. So women are more likely to die in a car crash because of that. Because for a long time, car manufacturers either didn't test with a uh, woman test dummy or they just scaled down like the dimensions of their like default man test dummy which is like not how women work right like we are not just smaller versions of men that's not how that works yeah and i'm sure any any woman can tell you that seat belts just don't fit right like it's there's a lot just a lot of everyday gaps um in in these designs of designers not designing for their audience I mean, think if you think about it, because engineering is a man-dominated field, um, men are not anticipating the problems of women because they have not lived it, right? So in order for that gap to close, more women um, need to be engineers. Uh, engineers need to consult women in their design process. Um, um, to find these gaps yeah just thinking of every single possible person who could be using the thing that you are designing for so what i'm hearing is it's it's not just you know people wanting to be better it's almost necessary we need more female engineers in these fields if we're to you know develop better and more effective technology so yeah we need more engineers of all shapes and sizes and colors, right? Like more people who are disabled, people of color. Um, bias exists in any system we design for. And the best way to mitigate that bias is to have a diverse set of data and designers and people working on these things so that you can have all sorts of perspectives from all the kinds of people who are going to be using whatever thing that you've designed for. That's so true. I've, I've recently read an article about um, like how to implement widespread change. And it was kind of like um, you take it baby steps. So just a little bit at a time, it said, instead of like changing everything 100% all at once, um, Transitioning, like maybe 30, 30% of the time or 30% of the change, I think was kind of the best way that they presented in order to effectively make, you know, large scale change. So the, the faster we can, you know, make the transition, have more diverse thoughts <laughs> in these industries, the better off we'll be. Yeah, for sure. And the first step to fixing any problem is to admit that you have a problem in the first place, which is why education on the topic, like we're doing this podcast, is so important. And it's it's a complex topic with a lot of nuance. So if people who are listening are interested in the things that we have to say, um, or maybe even like 
your gut reaction is that my experiences don't match up with what you've said, um, I would encourage you to dive deep into the topic yourself, look at peer-reviewed data, um, good sources and books, because it's it's a nuanced topic that is tough to fit in just one podcast. Agreed. Is there a good place um, that people can go to in order to find these resources? Uh, Google Scholar is a good one just to like find papers. You can usually tell how like, I guess, accepted a piece of work is by how many times it's been referenced by other people. Because if it's a piece of work that people are finding a lot of applications out of, they will have cited it in their own works. So that's one way. I know a lot of those are locked behind a paywall sometimes, which makes it a little tough, but I'm sure there are places to find them on the internet anyways. <laughs> yeah, and books that people have read are the books that we've said, books people have written. I'm sure there's way more than just the few that we've mentioned. Yeah, and then just talking to the people in your life like it's it's important to get varied opinions and experiences and i know talking to like my women classmates in engineering like my experiences are not singular be curious nice we like that <laughs> be curious <laughs> so i also as a part of the show i always do i have a playlist you know my my favorite songs and things that I've been listening to recently. Uh, do you have uh, a song or an artist that you've really been enjoying recently? Ooh, I'm not very much of a listen to just one artist kind of person. Um, I come across songs in like any corner of the internet and then I just listen to the song. I don't, I very rarely go down artist rabbit holes. So what's your, what's, what's been your mood, your, uh, your music mm. vibe? Music vibe. Kind of, kind of chill indie, I think. I don't know. I, it's hard for me to, I don't know how genres work. <laughs> I don't think anybody does, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, like the song slaps, I could not tell you what kind of genre it is. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Fuji Kaze recently. He's a Japanese artist. Um, again, no idea what genre because genres don't make sense to me. Um, <laughs> I've also been listening to a little bit of Fuji Kaze. <laughs> He's great. Yeah. Um. There's another Japanese artist called, I've actually never heard anyone say their name out loud, so I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's, I think it's Ado, it's A-D-O, so it's either Ado or Ado, because I've, yeah, but they've got a wonderful voice. That artist also sounds familiar to me. I think they may have popped up in, in my cycle recently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, realizing that I, I listen to a lot of artists that I've, where I've just like never heard their name said out loud and then suddenly i'm like i don't know how to pronounce your name <laughs> yep 
I've, I've been listening to a lot of like um, Japanese music recently. Uh, there's like a band, like the official Hige Dandism or something. No idea if I'm pronouncing that right. So I know what you mean. <laughs> there's also like um, Yoasobi. You heard of them? Yes. 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 Yeah. There's an anime I was watching and they did the uh, opening song for it. And so I've been kind of listening to that one on repeat. Was it Idol? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I had a feeling. Yeah. It's so good. It, it is. so hard. <laughs> I love the opening too. It just like draws you in. It it really does. I'm trying to think if there are any songs in actual English that I've been listening to a lot lately. Um, Ricky Montgomery is a is a good fave. I listen to quite a few songs from from him. Ricky Montgomery. That doesn't sound familiar to me. What? what uh, really, oh, yeah. A hard question, but uh, what kind of music do they make? <laughs> um, good songs to sing. That's that'll be my description. They're fun nice. to sing to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's some pretty banging songs out there. Yes, there are. <laughs> also, I listen to like a lot of um, Korean music. Uh, yes. Do you listen to some too? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Stray Kids and BTS are, are the two recent um, bands I've been listening to. Both good options. Both great options. Another Japanese artist I really like is... Uh, Takayan, I could be totally saying that wrong. Um, spelled T A K A Y A N. Uh, he he raps, and they're really good. And a lot of his songs talk about um pretty like interesting and serious and hard hitting issues too. So definitely recommend giving him a listen. I will say. Another another really good song in uh, celebration of it finally being summer is Summertime by Cinnamons and Evening Cinema. It's it's like my go-to happy song. I have a go-to song. It's like by Vicky Chen. And I honestly, I have no idea what the name of the song is. I can't read it. It's not in English. <laughs> But it, that's my, it's been my go-to song. So your go-to happy song. That that speaks well to the the attitude of this song. I am excited to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. It's like driving down a sunny road with the windows down song. All right. Well, Jesse, I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. We'll talk to you later. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Now it's, let's talk about the music update. Now we've kind of already covered a lot of this information. Jesse talked about some of the songs that she's been listening to, and I've mentioned a couple of the ones that I've been quite enjoying. Here are some of the specifics of the songs that have been in my continual rotation for the past week or so. First, we have Villains by Girls' Generation. That's a K-pop song. Shakon by Enhipin, K-pop. There's an instance where... I've never actually heard that band's name pronounced out loud, so I might be butchering that name just like Jessie mentioned she might be butchering other names. That song is probably K-pop. I Don't Love You Anymore by Aleph, A L 
EPH. It's a Korean indie song. Sunday Night Drive by Jay Park, Korean R&B. Summer Rain by Purple Kiss, K-pop. Nightmare by Kyuri, Kyuri, K-Y-U-R-I, Korean ballad. And then a song that, the one that I mentioned, how I don't know the actual title of the song, because it's not in English. Um, and it's by Vicky Chen. Uh, I'll categorize that one as Mandarin Ballad, I guess. And I should mention that because there's been almost a year since my last episode, I've listened to so much music in that intermediate time that to cram it all into one playlist for this episode is simply not possible. I think I've probably got... So I continued, I actually continued creating playlists as I create them for podcast episodes. And so, you know, a week or two would go by and I would have all these songs and then I would create a new playlist. And so I think I made it at least 15 to 20 playlists in that time. That's probably a severe underestimate. (laughs) But I've kind of sprinkled some more songs that I've I've liked over the, the, the past few months in this playlist. So there's definitely going to be the songs that Jessie mentioned, songs by the artists she mentioned, the songs that I have mentioned here, and then a number of other ones that I've been enjoying. So please check out that playlist if you want to find some of the music that we've been discussing. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spoon Drift. If you want to find the music that I talked about or that Jesse mentioned, you can check out my Spotify profile, The Spoon Drift Podcast, and find the Spoon Drift Season 4 Episode 1 playlist. I've also included a list of some of the references that we discussed in the show in the show description. So if you want to find any of those sources specifically, you can find them there. For more episodes of The Spoon Drift, you can visit Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How many times can I say podcasts in one sentence? If you want to find me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at SpoonDriftPod, that's at SpoonDriftPod, or on Instagram at SpoonDriftPodcast. My schedule going forward probably won't be super regular, but I'm going to try to keep releasing new episodes whenever I can. And so hopefully they will continue to connect with you. And with that, I hope to talk to you soon in one of those new and upcoming episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Slept since then, right?